Welcome back to the College Hoops Mania Podcast. I'm your host, Wes Troyer, and I'm recording this on December 23rd at 9.53 a.m. Coming off of a big night in college basketball, big games like Kansas, West Virginia last night, and a big weekend overall that I have to cover. And there's a lot of talk, there's a lot of talk about, so I got to get right into this today. First off, I'm going to start talking about the Gonzaga-Iowa game, which was the major headline game in all of college basketball, noon on CBS on Saturday. Both teams incredibly efficient offensively, and the result ended up be, being Gonzaga 99, Iowa 88 in the Pentagon in South Dakota. So major takeaways from this game. First of all, the difference between Gonzaga and Iowa is defense. They're both incredibly offensively, but the athleticism that Gonzaga has to make you uncomfortable defensively does not compare to what Iowa has. I mean, you looked, and Iowa tried to play the same style of play that Gonzaga does. They're trying to get in transition, push the ball up the floor, push the ball up the floor, and play really fast. And you saw rather quickly that that was not going to work. It appears teams that are going to try to match Gonzaga's speed and transition ability will not last against them. And I still think Iowa is a top five team personally. But you can't match Gonzaga's speed. They're the best transition team in the country, and it's not close. So yeah, my first takeaway is that you can't match the speed and that the major difference between the two teams is defense. If you look at Gonzaga now, we're looking at a team that may be one of the best offensive teams ever, and I know that's early to say that, but it's not like they haven't played good competition to this date. They have been absolutely dominant in games that they have played. They rank number one in offense in Ken Palm, and if you watch them, they just play at an incredible speed. The ball does not stick. The ball is always flying around the floor, and Gonzaga honestly has three potential All-Americans, like Drew Timmy, Corey Kispert, and Jalen Suggs are all All-American candidates. All three of those guys are phenomenal, and their supporting cast is phenomenal, like Joel Iyayi with 18 rebounds on Saturday. A guard. A guard for them gets 18 rebounds for them. Anton Watson, they hasn't really gotten going huge, but he still plays important minutes for them defensively and is a role player for them. And then Andrew Nemhard off the bench, who they actually started last night against Northwestern State. Andrew Nemhard played two really good years at Florida before he transferred to Gonzaga, and he has played great minutes for Gonzaga. I mean, when Suggs got hurt in the West Virginia game, even though he did come back, Nemhard was still the best player for Gonzaga that night. Like, they have so much depth. Aaron Cook solid off the bench. Balo is solid off the bench. They have so much depth, and they can beat you on so many different levels. They average, like, I believe 25 transition points a game. That just goes to show you how fast they are and how hard it is to stay in front of those guys. And now, looking at Iowa, I think it's clear for them what McCaffrey has to do to get that team to, you know, be on Gonzaga's level, and that is play defense. And I'll give it to them. They fought back in that game. People kind of, at the end of that game, people kind of called it, uh, you know, a domination from Gonzaga. It really, I mean, it was. They were up 20. Iowa really fought back, though, in that game. And I wouldn't say it was like a domination. Like, Iowa had it under 10 with the ball and with enough time and uh, to make a move on Gonzaga late in the game. So I, I think the fight in Iowa is encouraging. Fight in a team is something that is huge going forward. 
and McCaffrey clearly has it in his group this year. It made it clear also that Iowa, I mean, everyone expected them and considered them elite offensively, but it is, it's very obvious they are. They were down 20, and they made it a game on Gonzaga, who's the best offense in the country. Their defense got a few stops, just not enough stops down the stretch, which I don't think really any team can get enough stops on Gonzaga when they put themselves in that big of a hole. So yeah, Gonzaga 99, Iowa 88 in the Pentagon, which was the game of the weekend and the headline of the weekend in college basketball. Yesterday, however, John Calipari decided to hit Twitter. And before I'll get into that, actually, I'm going to cover and you know give you guys a background on what happened exactly in that game. Kentucky played Carolina in the CBS Sports Classic in Cleveland, and they lost by, I don't know, something like 10, 10 points or so. And... Kentucky actually led at halftime. They controlled the whole first half. They led for maybe five minutes into the second half. And they just got into foul trouble. Like, people talked about that game about just, like, how bad, like, how bad it was for Kentucky. You know, there's just nothing left for Kentucky. They honestly did not play bad. However, with, like, 15 minutes left in the second half, Lance Ware has four fouls, Olivier Saar has four fouls, BJ Boston has four fouls. I feel like somebody else did too or had three fouls. I mean, it was just ridiculous for Kentucky. And that honestly was the death of them, the foul trouble. And I'll stick by that. I said Kentucky would win that game. I think they would have if they didn't get into foul trouble. But okay, Kentucky goes to 1-5, and five, so I mean, that's all people care about. I mean, it's not about moral victories for that program. And so Cam Fletcher actually had a, threw a fit on the bench, apparently. I did not see it, but reporters, Kyle Tucker, Kentucky's beat writer, said that he threw a fit. He was crying on the bench because he did, wasn't getting playing time. Apparently, Terrence Clark was getting like just absolutely blasted at times by Calipari, which Calipari put him a point guard. Terrence Clark finished with zero assists, three turnovers. Although he scored the ball decently, but yeah, not the point guard numbers that you're looking for. And so it was a disaster. No players would do the post-game press, com- press conference, which meant the only player <laughs> that could was Keon Brooks and Keon Brooks said he'll do it for the team which was kind of funny and so yeah Keon Brooks did the post-game press conference he had not he has not played a game all year and so he said he would do it no one else wanted to so I guess that was good leadership from Keon Brooks but yeah so back to the Twitter Calipari hit Twitter yesterday around 11 30 or so and (laughs) it's actually kind of amazing and crazy what he said this is Calipari's words on Twitter we have asked Cam Fletcher to take some time and step away from the team he needs to reflect and do some soul searching to get his priorities in order any attitude or actions that are detrimental to this team will not be tolerated and that goes for everyone on the team we have a culture here that's been built over the last 11 years and it will not change through good times and bad The culture is meant to change individuals and change maturity levels. This hurts our team, but this is about Cam and his future. I talked to Cam and his mother, and they know I care about him and I love him. But they also understand that there are changes that need to be made. It's his job to decide whether he can perform within this culture both on and off the court. Close quote. So yeah, Calipari goes with that on Twitter. And like, okay, it's one thing, yeah, he releases a statement and says Cam Fletcher is taking, you know, time away from the program, you know, personal issues, whatever. Doesn't get into it, doesn't need to get into it with the media. 
This seemed that Calipari really stepped over the line here. To hit Twitter with this, and to honestly humiliate Cam Fletcher, like, this is a freshman too. The trust necessarily in the relationship isn't what it is going to be with upperclassmen. He does this to a freshman. And I honestly haven't seen a lot of people talk about how he stepped over the line. People are talking about how crazy it is and, like, how it was a big deal, you know, Cam Fletcher stepping away from the program. But other than Jeff Goodman, I will say Jeff Goodman did talk about that, how he thought it was wrong what Calipari did. I have seen nobody else talk about this. This is kind of ridiculous what Calipari did. Like, he does not need to throw his player under the bus like that. Sure, he can have those words with Fletcher, with Cam, with Cam's family in private. And he can release a statement saying he's stepping away from the program for personal issues, you know, whatever. He does not need to get into it with the general public about what is going on. And I honestly feel bad for Cam Fletcher. I hope he was not too humiliated by the statement. I don't know if Calipari apologized to him or whatever. I think Calipari should and probably should publicly as well. But that's where we're at with that right now. Kentucky's a mess. They're 1-5. and five. Like, beyond the loss Saturday, there is way more of a mess in Kentucky. Like this, I mean, players, you know, being super upset on the sideline, refusing to do post-game press conferences, like, there is far more issues behind the one and beyond the one and five start, and I honestly still think Kentucky's a solid team. I don't know if they can make the NCAA tournament due to the SEC being down and not having enough opportunities. Even though I still think they are solid, like if this is where their where their players are at, this is what John Calipari is <laughs> having to do: go to Twitter to tell the world that a certain individual naming that individual is stepping away from the team because he needs to reflect on himself and do some soul searching. Yeah, I don't think that's a good look for Kentucky, and they have far more issues beyond basketball right now. So yeah, getting past all that Kentucky drama now, which they're full of it, uh, we're going to get into the Northwestern Michigan State game, break that down a little bit. Pretty crazy. Northwestern beats Michigan State in Evanston 79-65. Boo Booey drops 30 points. What a name, Boo Booey, one of the best in college basketball. Yeah, he scores 30 on Michigan State. They really controlled the game the whole way. They are up 13 at halftime, never slowed down, 1 by 14. So starting with that game, let's first dive into Michigan State. Michigan State is one at Duke. They beat Notre Dame. They dominated Notre Dame. They beat, they've beaten other mid-majors. They beat Eastern Michigan. They beat Western Michigan, Oakland, and Detroit. And they almost lost to Detroit. They were down like eight with, you know, seven, eight minutes left in that game. They struggled with Detroit big time. They struggled with Eastern Michigan for a half. They struggled with Western Michigan for a half. They struggled with Oakland for a while. The only team they have dominated this year is Notre Dame. And now they just lose to Northwestern by 14 in a game they don't really compete in. I mean, yeah, I'd say it's time to panic for Michigan State. I'm not going to say it's like it's time to think that they're just not very good, not a top 25 team. They're still clearly a top 25 team. But they're probably not a top five team, and they're probably not even a top ten team. They're probably more the 15 to 20 range, and it's time to accept the fact about that. But yeah, outside of the Notre Dame game, Michigan State has not looked great. And I'm, I'll still give it. Duke's a good win. Duke was a good win. They looked good. I'll say outside of the Notre Dame and Duke games, they really have not looked good, and they've played down to competition big time this year. And I'll say something else about Michigan State, and that's the fact that Ken Palm even has them at 27. I mean... Ken Palm doesn't think they're that great of a team. You look at their efficiency numbers, and they're they're pretty good. Or they're very good offensively. 
they're actually very good offensively. They average like 22 assists a game. I'm not sure that ranks in the nation, but it's got to be right at top, probably number one, honestly. That is a ridiculous amount of assists a game. But they're like 49th, 50th in defense. That is not really characteristic for Tom Izzo. And the reason I'm not going to get nervous and worried about Michigan State is because Tom Izzo is not going to let this team continue to play bad defense. Tom Izzo, you know, proves year to year that he's going to have a good defensive team, and they're going to be sound defensively. They're going to be sound everywhere. They're not going to have glaring weaknesses. So, yeah, I'm not really worried about Michigan State. Tom Izzo's their coach, so there's really enough said with that. But, yeah, the fact is they really have not been all that impressive this year. The offensive end, they've looked very good at times, but defensively, like I said, pretty subpar. And that's where Michigan State needs to lock in. I think when they have Foster Lawyer on the court, it probably hurts them defensively. He's just so small. Lawyer is a great shooter, and he's had his moments shooting the ball this year. But Izzo's going to have to decide whether that is worth it playing him defensively because the fact is he is an undersized guard, and he's not good defensively. So... When Foster Lawyer's on the court, it's a bit of a liability for them at times. Looking at Northwestern, what does this look like for Northwestern now? I mean, people probably looked at them as last in the Big Ten, maybe second to last in the Big Ten, them in Nebraska at the bottom. But now that they start 1-0 in the Big Ten and they have the win against Michigan State, is this a team that can finish in the top ten? I mean, top ten might be enough to make the NCAA tournament this year in the Big Ten. They could definitely get 10 teams this year. I think Northwestern definitely has that ability because, I mean, they proved it, they proved it on Sunday night against Michigan State. But also, if you look at the bottom teams, Nebraska, I think Northwestern's better than, better than Maryland. I honestly think Northwestern is better than also. Penn State, that's close. Penn State's good. Minnesota's close. I mean... See, there's just so many solid Big Ten teams, and it makes it really difficult. I think North, what, what Northwestern's going to find is they're going to have nights like this because they can get hot. I mean, they can really shoot it at times. It's a team that's really fundamental, and they don't make a lot of mistakes, so they're not really going to beat themselves, but they're obviously a lot less athletic than the, pretty much all the Big Ten teams. So I think Northwestern will find themselves picking up major wins along the way. But when it, when it comes down to it, the consistency and the night-to-night level that all the other Big Ten teams will play will probably find that it's not enough to make the Big Ten tournament. I think Northwestern's better than Nebraska, and it's just a mess after that. I think Northwestern won't finish 14th. I think they'll probably finish more like 12th or 13th. Be, I, I'm not a big Maryland believer, so yeah, I think 12th, the 12th or 13th is probably what Northwestern will end up looking at, and that probably will not, I mean, I know that will not be enough for them to make the NCAA tournament, but Northwestern's a solid team, and Chris Collins is doing another great job there this year, looking that way, I mean, Northwestern's one game away from being undefeated, to be fair, they have played, they have four wins, and three of those wins are against horrible competition, bottom teams in Ken Palm, but they were one point away against Pitt, and they, they choked that game, they should have had that Pitt win, so they should be sitting there 5-0 and right now, but instead they're 4-1, and and they have the big Michigan State win. So an exciting time for Northwestern fans as their quest to make their second NCAA tournament. Another big result on Sunday, looking at Creighton-UConn. Creighton wins in stores, 76-74. A big win for Creighton and UConn's first game in the Big East since returning to the Big East this season. Major headlines in that game, James Booknight dropped 40. 
UConn was up too late. RJ Cole missed two free throws. Creighton goes down. Damian Jefferson hit the buzzer to send it to overtime from a couple feet away. So yeah, it goes to overtime. Creighton ends up winning. I think big takeaways from this game for Creighton is you look at when Greg McDermott put Denzel Mahoney on James Booknight, it changed everything. Booknight really slowed down. Mahoney's length and quickness showed that it was very tough to play against, and I think that's something that McDermott has to look at going forward. you got to put Mahoney on players like that. Like Damian Jefferson is a good defender, and I mean you don't want to just wear Mahoney down on the defensive end, but he proved that he is elite defensively, and once he was put on Booknight, Booknight slowed down tremendously. Booknight still kept trying to force stuff, and he really couldn't do anything on Mahoney. Mahoney's length was too much. His quickness was too much. Something else major that happened when UConn was up two at the end of regulation and there's about, I don't know, 10 seconds left, eight seconds left. RJ Cole, UConn guard, was going to the line with two free throws, trying to ice the game, misses them both. Where I already said, Damian Jefferson ends up tying it up, goes to overtime. We know it happened then. But yeah, RJ Cole went to Twitter after the game, apologized to UConn Nation, which was honestly pretty cool to see from RJ Cole. You know, taking accountability for what he did. And obviously, like, it happens. You don't need to get too worked up about it yet. Obviously, UConn is going in the right path to return to what they were a while ago. But, yeah, that was kind of cool to see RJ Cole go to Twitter and apologize to UConn Nation for the missed free throws. Obviously, that uh, that probably had a good effect on UConn Nation. I'm not a UConn fan, so, I mean, I don't know how a lot of the fans were reacting, but I bet they like to see that from RJ on Twitter. But Creighton has now won back-to-back games, looking a lot better defensively. And I'm really encouraged to see that because after the Marquette game where they just looked horrible defensively, they now have played back-to-back good defensive games, and they honestly won that game with defense. Other than James Booknight, UConn didn't do anything, and they even eventually slowed Booknight down at the end. So it was really encouraging for Creighton, and that's a big win for them. I don't think they're probably a top-10 team, but I still think they're a really good team that can be elite offensively and is looking like an improved defensive team. So it's encouraging to see the improvements that McDermott has made there. Furthermore, off of the Creighton game, the last Sunday game that I'm going to touch on is the Rutgers-Illinois game, where Rutgers won in Piscataway by a score of 91-88. to Illinois has dropped 2 of 3, dating back to the Missouri game and now this game. And the concerns for Illinois is now defensive issues where they have starting to give up quite a few points in recent games. But for Rutgers, Ron Harper had 28 in the game and Jacob Young had 24. It was an incredible performance by both of those guys, especially Ron Harper, who if you want to look at Ron Harper as the Big Ten player of the year, not named Luca Garza, he's probably that guy right now because, I mean, we all know Luca Garza is winning the Big Ten Player of the Year and the National Player of the Year. But if you're looking at the guy not named Luca Garza, who is Big Ten Player of the Year, Ron Harper's got to be the favorite right now. He just continues to go off for Rutgers and shoot the ball phenomenally from deep. Super encouraging for Rutgers to get Ron Harper and see the development from him. But looking at Illinois... They had zero production out of Adam Miller. And if you're looking from from the beginning of the year to now, Adam Miller has probably been on the biggest decline for them, which has really just been a huge bummer because he was shooting the ball so well early. 
and he was looking like he was going to be the Big Ten freshman of the year and one of the best freshmen in college basketball. And since early in the year of him shooting the ball great, he has shot the ball horribly, and he has just not shown up for Illinois. And he's starting to play in less minutes because of it, and they got to have more production outside of Desunmu every night and Coburn every night. Frazier, you know, most nights looking great. Demonte Williams scores when he can. Great defensive player. But outside of Frazier, Desunmu, and Coburn, like those guys are every night. And the problem with Illinois is they're kind of they're too one dimensional because they don't have enough scores. Like, like we know Bishanishvili can score. We know Curbelo can sc- can score. We know Miller can score, but they don't every night. And like I said earlier, obviously defensive issues too, where they have dropped tremendously in Ken Palm on the defensive side of the ball, where I still think they're really high in offense, but they're down to like 37 in defense. So that's a concern for Brad, for Brad Underwood for in Illinois. But if you're looking at Rutgers going forward, it's honestly kind of remarkable that they get to bring Geo Baker off the bench. Like, that is OP for them. Geo Baker just a couple years ago, was arguably their best player, him or Corey Sanders, and when they went off at the Big Ten tournament when he was at the Garden, like, that was Geo Baker. Him and Corey Sanders did everything, and now Geo Baker, a couple years later, is coming off the bench, which is actually really, really crazy to think about, and it goes to show you how good Rutgers really is and, you know, how much better they've gotten. If you look at Rutgers, like, what makes them so difficult is they just have no weakness, they're so solid everywhere. I mean, they're super physical. They shoot the ball. They move the ball. But yet, like I said, they're super physical, and defensively, they're so sound. They're tough to stop, and they're tough to score on. It makes it it makes it makes for a really good team. And it makes it for a team that I trust going forward and a team that I trust in the NCAA tournament. Because they're going to be night to night. Like They don't take nights off. Obviously, they're going to have bad games. Every team's going to have bad games. But I think they'll be one of the more consistent teams in the country due to the fact that they don't really have a big weakness. And I'm really excited about Rutgers going forward. And I definitely think that they can compete for a Big Ten title amongst many other teams that I also can that I also think can compete for a Big Ten title because there's so many great teams in the Big Ten this year. But I think Rutgers is right up there at the top with Wisconsin and Iowa. And I still think Illinois is right there. So yeah. It really encouraging for Rutgers and a huge win for them to start now 2-0 in the conference and a confidence boost going forward for those guys. Okay, getting past all the weekend stuff now, we're getting into the week. And Tuesday night, which was last night, I'm recording this Wednesday morning, was a phenomenal night. And I'm going to first talk about just how we had three great finishes in a row at 7 o'clock. It was super entertaining. I'm going to start out with Missouri Bradley. Missouri was down eight with three minutes and 40 seconds left in that game. They come back and end up winning by one. Beat Bradley at home. And Missouri, obviously, people know has that big Illinois win. And Bradley is one of the better mid-majors. They've, they're like six and three now, I believe. And they've won back-to-back Missouri Valley Conference championships. But yeah, Missouri wins by one. I'm gonna look. At, I'm gonna talk about the end of that game a little bit, as well as the other ones too. But yeah, Missouri is down two with the ball, last possession for them. It looks like they. I forget who drove it, but ends up uh, dishing it off to Jeremiah Tillman, who goes in and draws an and one. 
and ends up making the free throw, puts him up by one with literally just one second left. That's all there is. So, I mean, the game's really over. You know, no advancing the ball in college basketball. So Bradley inbounds the ball. Chuck it one hand down the floor where literally no Bradley players was, and it was just two Missouri players right by the right by the sideline on the other end of the floor. And both of them kind of go up for it. One of them touches the ball while standing out of bounds, or touches the ball and then very, very shortly after hits out of bounds line. Point three goes off the clock. So Bradley goes all the way down to the end of the floor with point seven left, down one. So now they have a legit shot to win it, you know. They're inbounding the ball on the whole other end of the floor now. And so they inbound the ball, but Missouri deflects the inbound pass, time expires, so Bradley doesn't even have given a shot. But phenomenal finish there. And there's the NC State uh Carolina game was also phenomenal finish phenomenal finish at seven o'clock. NC State was up big in that game. I believe they're up like fifteen at most. And Carolina under a minute was kind of playing the foul game for a while, trying to get back into it because they they were down, you know, six points or so under a minute. And they eventually actually the foul game pays off. They get the ball down three with mm, ten seconds, fifteen seconds, I forget exactly what it was. And they come down, miss three, end up getting the rebound, and they get they uh, kick it out to Caleb Love for a wide open top of the key three, and he was shooting this as pretty much as time was about to expire. Wide open top of the key three, down three, misses it. So no overtime. NC State wins, big win for NC State. Shout out Shaquille Moore, huge game for the freshman. So yeah, big win for NC State there. And then the other game at seven o'clock that was a phenomenal finish was Oklahoma Texas Tech. Texas Tech ends up winning this game. Although, I'm actually going to talk about the end of that game a little bit too and what it looks like for Texas Tech going forward, but pretty much Texas Tech was up four with 13 seconds after McClung just hit two free throws. Oklahoma comes down, Austin Reeves hits a tough three, gets it to a one-point game with eight seconds left. Texas Tech immediately fouls, or sorry, Oklahoma immediately fouls after the inbound, fouls McClung again, McClung hits both free throws. Texas Tech's back up three to six seconds. Oklahoma comes down. Texas Tech decides to play the foul game. They foul Davion Harmon. Davion Harmon hits the first free throw, intentionally misses the second. And Oklahoma gets the offensive rebound and gets fouled. So two free throws for Oklahoma. They miss the first one, and then they intentionally miss the second one again, which is crazy. There's like 2.6 seconds left on the clock at this point. And after the miss, they get a tip-up, no good, another tip-up, no good. Ends up coming back to Austin Reeves, who has a really good look. It wasn't just a tip. He gets to catch the ball in midair and put it back up right at the rim. Just rims out. Texas Tech wins by two. But yeah, going back to digging into Texas Tech and what it looks like for them going forward, looking at this game, you saw the size just kill them down the stretch. Like, not being able to rebound on the missed free throws should have and easily could have cost Texas Tech the game. Because you look at it, I mean, they Marcus Santos Silver is their tallest player in their starting lineup at 6'7". It's a small team, and hopefully rebound doesn't rebounding doesn't become an issue for them. But that was pretty pretty embarrassing for Texas Tech to just not be able to grab a rebound four different times to seal the game. And Oklahoma missed every time, so Texas Tech still comes out with the win. But it's something that they need to look at because that's inexcusable. And 
Texas Tech can't let their size, you know, decide whether they can rebound or not. But hopefully the lack of size for Texas Tech doesn't end up hurting them too much down the stretch of games and going forward in this season because it, the truth is they are a small team. But despite that, they still are a great defensive team. But, yeah, concerns for Texas Tech with the lack of size. Crazy finishes in the Tuesday night games, those three 7 o'clock games were just awesome. It was great to see. And it was cool because, like, it went North Carolina, NC State, you know, just ended, and then it was Missouri Bradley getting crazy at the end. And then right after that, it was the Texas Tech-Oklahoma game. So, I mean, it was just bang, bang, bang. Great college basketball games, and that's what us college basketball fans love to see, and that's why we love the sport so much. It's just every night, you know, great finishes. And it's just super entertaining to see. So, I mean, those three games at 7 o'clock last night were awesome for us college basketball fans, and that's exactly why we love the sport right there. After those three amazing games on Tuesday night, we also had a top 10 tilt with Kansas-West Virginia, and it was amazing what Kansas did in that game. Kansas dominates West Virginia in Lawrence, 79-65, and they dominated them with just a barrage of threes from Kansas. And it was something that we necessarily haven't seen Kansas do yet this year. Like Jalen Wilson was just banging threes. Garrett hit some threes. Brown was banging threes. Abaji hit some threes. But I mean, it was especially Brown and Wilson. Like Brown was 6 for 12 from 3. Wilson was 4 for 10 from 3. Garrett was 3 for 3 from 3. Abaji hit three threes. I mean, they hit 16 as a team. They shot 43% from that line. It was amazing what Kansas was doing and they were just getting open looks quick they were getting up they were getting up the floor in transition and they were just getting to that three-point line and they were getting shots before West Virginia could get set on defense it was really really impressive and a dominant performance from Kansas some takeaways from that game is Bill Self proves that he can play small even against extremely physical teams like West Virginia I mean West Virginia playing their two centers in Culver and Shibwe are as physical of team as you will find in the country West Virginia is extremely physical, and Kansas decided to go small. Obviously, they played McCormick a lot, and McCormick actually played quality minutes, but Kansas still went small a lot of times without McCormick, and they showed that they can rebound. What was a really interesting stat to see is Kansas actually out-rebounded West Virginia, and West Virginia out-rebounds their opponent by five, uh, five rebounds on the offensive end each game, and they didn't out-rebound them on the offensive end yesterday where they... Uh, were cut even on the offensive rebounding side. So that was really interesting to see for Kansas and encouraging to see for Kansas that Bill Self can go small play, or can play small going forward and it'll be okay. Looking at the flip side of this game, I don't really think West Virginia needs to start panicking or anything yet. I mean, it was still a game at Kansas. In a game that Kansas hit 16 threes in, if Kansas making 16 threes, I mean, likely no team is going to beat them in the country or I don't even, like, Gonzaga might, but probably even Gonzaga wouldn't. Like, Kansas is really good if they're making shots like that. So, West Virginia doesn't need to panic. I mean, they're rebounding. Uh, I wouldn't say that they didn't struggle rebounding, but they just didn't dominate rebounding like they might have expected to. So, that'd be, like, the only concern for West Virginia. I mean, they still they still didn't play a bad game. They were still down nine with eight minutes left, and that was with Kansas making all those threes. They stuck around. I mean, they weren't really, like, Kansas wasn't really in danger of losing the game ever, but, I mean, West Virginia doesn't need to panic about that game. Overall, Kansas just dominating performance and a terrific performance from the Jayhawks last night and encouraging for them going forward in the rest of this season. 
overall, Tuesday night was just a great night of basketball. I also beat Purdue last night, which is a notable result. But getting past Tuesday night's results, the weekend's results, breaking down those games, I'm going to look at Tennessee now. And Tennessee really hasn't been talked about a lot because they were on pause to start the season, missed the first couple weeks. They missed their Gonzaga game, so they didn't get their um, big game with Gonzaga to show what they were made of. And they really haven't played, you know, huge games yet. They beat Colorado and they beat Cincinnati, but they, that was their two most major games they've played. Both teams are solid, but they haven't played a great team yet. But I want to talk about Tennessee, and I want to get talking about them and tell you guys how good they are before other people do, before, the, you know, Tennessee starts proving that they are when they start, you know, dominating the SEC. Tennessee is arguably the best defensive team in the country. I'm not sure what they rank in Ken Palm. Here, let me pull that up real quick. I imagine it's top five in Ken Palm in defense. I'm pretty sure Texas Tech's still one. Tennessee is now fourth uh, in defense efficiency on Ken Palm. They're 33 in offensive efficiency, and that's part because they literally practiced for like two days before the Colorado game, and they still won because their defense is so good. But the last two games they've played, they've scored over 100 points. So they're often starting to click. Tennessee, so yeah, they're amazing defensively. What I like about Tennessee is they have the experience, but but they also have the freshman talent. Like, if you look at Tennessee, and I was thinking about this, I was talking to my friend, I'm like, no team has more talent in the country than Tennessee does. Like, what team has more NBA talent than Tennessee? Because they have Keon Johnson, they have Jaden Springer. And we couldn't name a team that has three or more than two surefire NBA guys. Some other teams have two. But then they also have some maybes, like Eve Pons is a maybe. I'd say Josiah Jordan James is a maybe. Like they have arguably four NBA players on the team, two surefire NBA players, two arguably lottery picks on that team. But then they also have the experience. Like John Fulkerson is a great uh, a great player to have. He's a smart, experienced player who, you know, good leadership for that team. And then they also have some other guys on the team like Victor Bailey. He provides good shooting for them and some experience for them as well. So, Tennessee looks very, very good. I personally think, like, I think it goes Villanova 1, Baylor 2, and I actually think Tennessee's 3 behind those teams. I'm not sure if I would say Tennessee. I expect for them to be in the same tier, but I don't think they're going to be far behind those teams. I think Tennessee is already proved themselves that they're amazing defensively, and I think they're going to prove themselves that they're also really good offensively. I didn't talk about Vescovi. He's another really good shooter for them. Like, Tennessee has good shooting. They have inside game with Fulkerson. They have the athleticism, Pons, Springer, Keon Johnson, Josiah Jordan-James. Like, Pons is the rim protector. They have that. Like, they rebound well. They they do everything. They do everything. They don't have a weakness. And I think having that experience and talent mixture is huge for a team. A lot of teams have all experience, not a lot of talent. And then you have teams like Kentucky who has all talent and no experience. So I think... Tennessee has that perfect mix, and I think they are extremely underrated. I mean, it's not, I mean, they're still ranked highly and they're still a top 10 team, but people don't really talk about them yet because they don't really know. They haven't played in the big games yet, so they don't really know what to expect from Tennessee. I'm here to tell you right now, Tennessee is a top five team in the country, and I even think they're number three in the country. This team is really good, and people need to start realizing it and accepting the fact Tennessee will run the SEC and have no troubles in that conference. None. More SEC news outside of Kentucky, however. Another update on Keontae Johnson, the Florida star who, like I said, collapsed. 
and was in the hospital for a while. He is now released from the hospital. Just huge, huge news for Florida and just the well-being of Keontae Johnson. It's really awesome to see that he's okay. He's out of the hospital and really happy to hear that news from Keontae Johnson as well as everybody in the college basketball world was very happy to hear that news from Keontae Johnson. All right, now to end this podcast, as I'd like to do at the end of every podcast, is pick some games for this upcoming week. I'll pick some games through Saturday. I know we have Christmas, Christmas Eve, so it's going to be busy this uh, upcoming week. So I'm going to pick some games for the weekend because I probably won't be able to do a podcast then. So first off, I'm going to do Xavier Crayon, which is today, um, the Tuesday, December 23rd. Xavier Crayon's at Crayon, and this is really Xavier's first real test. They've beaten Cincinnati. They're 8-0. They now cracked the top 25 poll. They're 22nd, and now they have Creighton. And I'm going to stick with Creighton due to the fact that Xavier hasn't been tested yet. It's their first real test, and Creighton has really been playing a lot better basketball lately on the defensive side. I expect for Xavier to be a little overwhelmed with what Creighton brings because they haven't quite seen that yet, so I like Creighton and because they're home. So yeah, I'll take Creighton in that game. Next up, we got UCLA-Oregon, which is also today in the afternoon, which is kind of interesting that Pac-12 is having an afternoon hoops game, which means their time, I mean, it's it's 3.30 here, so it's uh, 12.30 there, 12.30 tip time on the West Coast. So yeah, UCLA-Oregon at Oregon. I will take UCLA in this game. I like UCLA's experience, and Oregon just had the news that Infale Dante is having surgery, season-ending surgery. Big loss for Oregon, which is disappointing for them. I liked how Johnny Juzang played for UCLA on Saturday. Despite the loss against Ohio State, uh, UCLA still showed some positives. It was nice to see Johnny Juzang play well in that game. I like UCLA in this game to win today at Oregon. Next up, we got Rutgers-Ohio State, which is another afternoon game today on the East Coast. Really awesome about all these afternoon games this year. Big fan of that. Hope they keep doing that going forward. But yeah, Rutgers at Ohio State today. I'm going to take Rutgers to get to 3-0 and in the Big Ten. Um, Ohio State does have E.J. Liddell back, which does help with their size issues. Although he's not huge, he's still big, and he plays bigger than his, uh, bigger than how tall he actually is. I like Rutgers to... They're just more of a complete team than Ohio State. They don't really have the weaknesses, like I said earlier in the podcast. I think Ohio State might rely too much on the three-point ball at times. If they don't get E.J. Liddell going, it gets really dangerous for that team. But yeah, I like Rutgers. I think that they will dominate inside physically. They're not a lot more physical than Ohio State. Even though this is at Ohio State, obviously home court's not as valuable. So I'm going to take Rutgers in this game to get to 3-0 in the Big Ten. Another Big Ten game, Christmas Day, noon tip, Wisconsin, Michigan State, and East Lansing. Michigan State tries to get back on track after their loss to Northwestern. And Wisconsin just had a huge win on Saturday against Louisville where they won by 37, and then they beat Nebraska last night after scoring like six points in the first 12 minutes of the game. They end up winning that game handily. So yeah, Wisconsin to Michigan State. I'm going to take Michigan State to get back on track here. Tom is not going to let this group lose again and have another bad performance. Wisconsin is really difficult to guard. I think Michigan State plays better defensively, and the way they move the ball, it's going to be difficult for uh, Wisconsin to match up with. Having Potter... And Reavers on the floor can sometimes be difficult. Those guys can move well in reverse still, but uh, it still is a little dangerous for them defensively. I think Michigan State will play well enough offensively. Obviously, Wisconsin's a great offensive team, but yeah, I like Michigan State to bounce back in this game. And then we have the rivalry game also on Christmas, or sorry, not on Christmas Day, on Saturday. Kentucky Louisville. 
Wow, Kentucky's 1-5, Louisville just came off of a 37-point loss on Saturday, although they did bounce back last night to Pitt, big game for them, although Pitt lost Justin Chimpenny, which is a huge loss for them, and Audis, Audis Tony also didn't play the game, so Pitt's two leading scorers, so take Louisville's win with a grain of salt. Kentucky-Louisville, I am going to pick Louisville, and I'm going to say Kentucky goes to 1-6, Louisville has Carly Jones back now. Carly Jones and David Johnson are two of the best combo guards in the country. I love that Louisville has both of those guys. Dre Davis, Samuel Will- Samuel Williamson, both been playing better. Dre Davis actually been playing well the whole year, but Samuel Williamson's been playing better of late. I like Louisville in this game. Kentucky has a lot of off-the-court issues right now, distractions. I'll take Louisville to win this game, although it could it's going to be interesting. It could get ugly as both teams are frustrated right now, and we'll see if anything crazy happens in that game. And then the last game I'm going to pick is Gonzaga, Virginia, which is also Saturday, 4 o'clock tip in that game. It just got scheduled about a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago. And so Gonzaga came off of the Iowa win. They played Northwestern State twice after that. Shouts to Northwestern State, who dropped 62 points in the second half against Gonzaga. Who knows how in that game. But yeah, Gonzaga, so pretty much coming off the Iowa game. So the game plan for Iowa, you know, amazing offensive team, plays super fast. Now they transition to Virginia. Slowest pace in the country, you know, defensive-minded, absolute polar opposites of Iowa. So it's, I believe, like 1 versus 16 in this game. Saturday, like I said, 4 o'clock tip. I'll take Gonzaga. You really can't bet against Gonzaga at this point. I mean, I wouldn't, other than, I still think they're better than Baylor, although Baylor is real close with them in my opinion. Can't pick against Gonzaga. It'll be interesting to see how Virginia plays. They just had... Played William and Mary yesterday for the first game in a while. So Virginia really hasn't had a test in a long time. So yeah, this will be interesting to see how they play in this game, see if they've made improvements. They haven't played in a while. So so yeah, I'll take Gonzaga in this game. And with that being said, and uh, those are all the picks I'll be making. I hope you guys all have a good Christmas and good holidays with your family. It was fun to do another podcast with you guys, and I'll see you guys later. Peace.